Aloha Kako. You're listening to the Aloha Friday Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, an hour of art, culture, and ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa, and we're jumping into Valentine's Day with a look at how it's done a little differently in 2020. A 2017 Gallup poll concluded that a good 4.5% of adult Americans identified as LGBT. Definitely more women in that camp. And not sure what that number would be if we added those questioning, which is the Q in the LGBTQ. It's my pleasure now to introduce you to Cameron Miyamoto, director of the LGBTQ Plus Center at the UH University of Hawaii at Manoa. And he's joining us today with students Paula Ray and Jung Ha Kim. Cameron, thank you for being here. Jung Ha, Paula. Great to be here. You know, we know that your sexuality isn't everything about you. You're three-dimensional humans. But thank you so much for coming in today to talk to us about it. Um, You know, let's start with you, Paula. Could you just tell me about yourself, Paula? Oh, okay. So I'm Paula Ray. I... Have she her pronouns? I identify she her she her uh-huh. yes. I identify as demisexual and panromantic. Demisexual. Yes. Okay. What's that? So demisexual is part of the asexual spectrum. It's in between um, sexual and um, asexual, where demisexuals only feel sexual attraction with a very strong, very long relation, basically. Really? Okay. Yeah. Wait. Wait. Now, so. Okay, there's normal sexuality, yes. you're saying, and then there's asexual, which is? It's the lack of feeling of sexual attraction. So they, it's not, mm. it's different from celibacy, where they just don't want to have sex. Like, it's the difference between, like, maybe a priest is, like, do, doesn't take a wife because, like, they're devoted to God, and they just don't rule out sex. And maybe, like, um, a teenager who just, like, doesn't want to have sex, and it's, like, that's fine. They don't don't feel it. They're just asexual, maybe for a time. Um, not. Oh, that's not asexual. That's more like demisexual, gray A. So hmm. it, it's a spectrum. You, right. There's people who definitely do not feel sexual attraction, and the people who feel it only sometimes, and the people who feel it under certain circumstances. The oh. idea that it's a spectrum was so huge and so new for me because mm-hmm. I always thought it was just either sexual or asexual. Mm-hmm. And then just this past year, mm-hmm. my students were teaching me that being a spectrum, it's so much more complex and rich. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I learned about asexual identities is for some folks on that spectrum, they're saying things that like, Sex is just one of the things that exists in the world, and it's so Mm -hmm. insignificant in my life. Mm -hmm. I don't see why I should have that be part of my identity. Mm -hmm. And when I was hearing about that, I was thinking, okay, I'm getting a better understanding of what it might be to describe someone who identifies on the asexual spectrum. Well, in the professional world, you know, sexuality is really sort of repressed anyway. So I'm wondering if that actually helps. Huh. So um, you're demisexual. Yes. You she and her pronouns. Yes. Okay. That's kind of a baseline, just getting to know how to, how to talk with you. Yes. Jung uh, mm-hmm. Ha. Mm-hmm. How, how, would, how, do you do, how do, would you identify? Uh, so I use they, them pronouns. I am non-binary, which means I don't align myself with the gender binary. Um, and sexuality-wise, I identify as queer. Um, not gay, um, but queer. Okay, um, okay, help me with this one now. So you mm-hmm. don't identify as either male or female mm-hmm. and queer. So you you would be attracted to people who also do not identify as male or female. Uh, yes, so the reason why I go with the term queer um, is because with sexuality, there's the aspect of who's interested in whom. Mm. Um, and for me, it's a little complicated, and I'm currently working to figure that out. Right. I mean, I just want to ask you, who are you attracted to? Mm. <laughs> you know, who are you attracted to? Oh, um, Chris Evans. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good looking guy. You know, this is so fascinating and so complicated. Mm. I mean, you grew up uh, getting those little, you know, pastel candy hearts with so sweet and whatnot stamped yeah. on there, right? Mm. At what point did that start to feel a little strange? Um, for me, uh, I always, like, thought about love. So, have you ever heard about, like, the Greek, um, 
the Greek definition of love, where there's different uh, different words for love that um, that mean different things. Like there's agape, which is the godly love, and then there's eros, which is sexual love, and then stroge, which I believe is family love. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it goes on and on. So whenever I think of the candy hearts, I just thought, oh, okay, that's just like us being friends. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Uh-huh. Oh, like especially with love, there's such a, a romantic, like Western connotation to it. Yes. Um, and we really do neglect like the love we have with our friends and our family. Hmm. Hmm. That's making me think about how we celebrated Valentine's Day <laughs> with our LGBT group at UH. <laughs> yes. Oh. So we kind of renamed it. And we gave Valentine's cards to each other that I bought from Long's, uh, <laughs> but we redecorated them and did a Palentine's Day <laughs> exchange. <laughs> so we e- affirmed each other's roles in each other's lives and the fact that we're friends and get along and found a group that understands each other. We don't have to explain ourselves to each other. So we were each other's Palentines. Oh. Um, yeah. I mean, you're reminding me of a Valentine card I saw recently. It says, match made in heaven, and heaven was crossed out, and it said grinder. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, grinder is not heaven. Yeah. <laughs> well, how, how do you meet? Uh, you know, how, how has it been um, evolving in your understanding of your sexuality? Um, oh, so how do we meet? Well, I, I think I'd rather go back to that other question. How okay. has it been evolving your sexuality mm. as you were growing up? Oh, so I was raised in a conservative Korean household, um, also Roman Catholic. Mm. Uh, so I did attend an all-boys Catholic high school over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so until around late middle school, I didn't really understand why I was feeling the way I'm feeling. Um, and so... Well, well, you were feeling... How did you feel? Um I was feeling attractions towards um, other men um, in my class. Um, So middle school, it sort of started, you realized that mm -hmm. this this was an attraction. Okay. Yeah. um, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I didn't have the definition for it. Uh, I just kind of thought, okay, this person's like the person I want to be best friends with. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And so I was constantly trying to put a label on that. And like throughout high school, I had a... I did a year in Fairfax, Virginia um, for a marching band thing. And over there, I joined a GSA and What's meeting. That? Oh, uh, it's a Gay Straight Alliance. I believe they go by Gender and Sexuality Alliance now, though. Oh. Um, and so there were other students who had years of experimenting with their identity, um, support from meaningful adults. And so I got to learn a lot from them. And from them, what I learned was that for what was right for me isn't always going to align with everyone else's and that what was right for me is to acknowledge that my sexuality, the labels that I go with are evolving just as I am and that my comfort can be found in that growth and change. You're almost making me wonder if uh, a lot of heterosexual people maybe have never asked themselves the questions Mm. you're talking about Mm. and and don't know what the answers might be. You know, because we don't ask ourselves that many questions about love. It's kind of, it's been sort of like this pat thing that was understood that was one way, right? Yeah. Huh. And if you're looking for something different in that, uh, you have to feel your way toward it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of us spend a lot of time trying to figure that out because we just get so much information from larger society that just doesn't make sense. Mm. And it was like, I'm trying to figure out why don't I feel like this applies to me as a kid growing up. Um, so it points to like how um, I might have a feeling of being a little different. Um, you maybe mean you I'm just, perceived I just don't feel being, that way. Okay, um, when Jung Hwan was talking, the first thing, my first memory was kindergarten. And I didn't think of myself as gay, but I had three of us, Eric, Naomi, and I, got in a fight in the tricycle room because we were arguing about who was going to marry who. Uh, And it was just an innocent little thing where Eric wanted to marry Naomi, Naomi wanted to marry Cammie, and Cammie wanted to marry Eric. And and before we knew it, we were like throwing the tricycles around and had to get the the whole tussle broken up. Um, But 
it's kind of like knowing that in that kind of playful, naughty innocence, uh-huh. knowing that things aren't just the way that they're always told they're going to be of male, female, happy marital bliss. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, as a kindergartner, um, I went by Cami, and people always thought I was a girl, and I was cool with that. Um, and the only time I remember being upset that um, people thought I was a girl was when our principal was the um, substitute for my kindergarten class. And the principal was giving out the award at the end of his time with us by saying, best little girl, best little boy, get an award. And he presented me the best little girl award. And I was like so excited. So I went up to go get my award. And then the class started laughing and saying, Cammy's not a girl, he's a boy. And then the principal took my award away. So I wasn't actually <gasps> upset that I was outed as a boy. <laughs> um, but the fact that I didn't get the award, which I guess shows something about my personality. <laughs> Yeah, a lot about our community is more like a journey and exploration yeah. of ourselves. When you're part of the community, you're not just like, oh, I'm definitely this, get away. It's like, hey, I think I might be this, and let me see what else about it. And I think that's one thing that's exciting about being part of the LGBTQ plus community is like we are a cohesive community based on stuff that we we, what we have in common is that we're not the same. In terms of, yeah, mm-hmm. it's just like what we have in common is we're not straight and cisgender. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. It's, it's kind of like how do we have comfort and meaning in that? It's, it's really kind of exciting to see. And it's changed so much so the way it is oh. when I was in college in the 80s as just a typical little gay boy. And now it's so much more rich and complex when I see the different kinds of identities that are lived with our students. No kidding. These different identities, Jonah. Mm. Uh, um, we've just scratched the surface of, mm-hmm. of, of this whole spectrum. Yeah. I wonder how we can go deeper, how we can keep this conversation going. I mm. really do. Um, what kinds of things do you deal with in your coffee hour? Oh, coffee hour. So coffee hour is more like, hey, everybody, what have you been doing? Let's have fun. Mm. Uh, and if we have a speaker, we'll be talking about whatever the speaker is talking about. Uh, yeah, when when oh. do you meet? Oh, so we meet on Wednesdays, and we meet from 3 to 4, so whoever doesn't have class comes over, <laughs> and we talk story, we introduce ourselves. We always introduce ourselves with our pronouns, so if anyone forgets or um, if everyone is new, they feel comfortable since everybody's <laughs> doing it. Oh. Yeah. Um, one thing that I do enjoy um, about coffee hour is that the asking of pronouns is a regular, normal thing. And for people like me who identify outside of the gender binary, or even for people who are transgender um, within the binary, uh, having that person who initiates and say and asking for their pronouns can mean the world because we know immediately that it's a safe space where we can be ourselves. Help me to do this on a regular basis. When I just meet people, should I ask them, what are your pronouns? Uh, or what should I say? One thing that I like to do is offer my pronouns first to show them that I oh. am familiar with the concept. Um, so I'll say, hi, my name is Jung Ha Kim, and I use they, them pronouns. Uh, and if they know about it, they'll catch on. It's kind of like saying I'm a friend of Dorothy's, but for <laughs> gender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you so much. You've really opened some windows for me, and I hope for the audience. And in too. a political context, one way of saying it is that I do that as a cisgender ally. Mm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, all of you. We've been talking with students Jung Ha Kim and Paula Ray, also with Cameron Miyamoto from the LGBTQ Plus Center at UH Manoa. Hey, ha- Valentine's Day isn't exactly a cakewalk for monogamous heterosexuals either. <laughs> Let me tell you <laughs> the expectations. There's only one thing that makes it worth it, and that's the feeling. Let's turn to Marianne Ito about that. She's an example of Hawaii's particular kind of magic, Samoan Japanese. Marianne hit the soul charts in the UK with her breakthrough recording several years ago. Marianne Ito describes the feeling that can overtake us. 
to the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Now let's get that neighbor island party line going. We're hopping over to Maui, checking in with a dedicated community volunteer, Lucienne Dene. She's in the Sierra Club, she leads hikes, she's been working on water issues for years, and she lives in Huelo. Ever been there? It's between Haiku and Keanai on the Hana Highway. <laughs> okay, Lucienne, what's up in Huelo? Well, let's see. It stopped raining. That's the big news in Huelo. We had um, three or four long days of rain, which for us, um, of course, we love the rain because uh, we're the rainforest and it waters um, all of the um, native and non-native plants and all of the farms here. But also the rain means that since our road gets no county maintenance, even though it's a public road, we have the old Hama Highway, the old King's Trail, Passed through our neighborhood, and many of my neighborhood neighbors live along it. And um, however, we have to maintain it. They weren't designed as modern roads; they were designed as cart trails and things. They're on maps from the 1800s. Uh, so it's up to us to like go and buy gravel and get machines out and try to spread it and try to keep the rivers from washing it all away when the rains come. And well, how do you organize yourselves? How many of you does this take? <laughs> a road committee, and I'm the co-chair of the road committee, and it's my job to go uh, knocking on people's doors along with my co-chairman, uh, Sharon, and um, get their, their contributions. That's life here uh, with very few county services. You know, we have no county water system. We, many of the roads here don't even have electricity, hundreds of people. Yeah. There's about 1,000 people that live in our general Huelo area. None of them have any public water system, and none of them have any road maintenance unless they do it themselves. Oh, what do people do now who live in that area, Huelo? Well, a lot of people farm. Um, uh, some people actually grow kalo here, and we recently, um, after 20 years, got one of our streams restored here in our valley, the Hanehoi stream. Uh, do you still have your program on Akaku? I do. I uh, do. What's the name of it? Um, again, Lucia? Crossroads. Crossroads. And, uh, uh-huh. Every Tuesday there's a new program, every other Tuesday. Mm. Yeah, I had an exciting program last week. I had on uh, Mike Atherton, who owns a couple thousand acres in central Maui around the Waikapu stream, and Bobby Pahia, who's the president of the uh, Mama Kahalawai branch of the uh, Hawaii Farmers Union. And they talked about real farming in central Maui. Bobby has 300 acres that he's gotten from Mr. Atherton on lease. Mr. Atherton is the only large landowner flash, you know, developers who's planning to develop homes, uh, but also set aside a, an 800-acre agricultural preserve in perpetuity that's leased at reasonable rates to farmers and provided with water at reasonable rates. Hello? <laughs> I know you guys are still struggling with the old dole lands and stuff in Oahu. Uh-huh. I don't know if anyone's uh-huh. about the small farmers yet. Well, we just had, you know, a, one private individual who's very community-oriented and who meets regularly with the community. Now, who's making all this possible again? Mike Atherton. He is uh, the developer of Waikapu Town. The Did they do it in a nice way? It's beautiful, yeah. It's uh, provided many opportunities for local artisans. There are all kinds of cute little cubby holes where, you know, artisans can set up and rent a space and 
show what they make, and they have a farm-to-table restaurant. And he's done a beautiful job of re-energizing the whole location. And eventually there'll be a town built around it with affordable housing, market price housing, some housing that goes for build your own. And Mr. Atherton has met widely with the community for the last 10 years. Geez, it's so, so exciting to hear about, and we're going to have to continue to check in with you, Lucien. Good. Well, look forward to another time, and stay dry there in Oahu. <laughs> that was Lucien Dene. Her Akaku cable program, fabulous Akaku, you're f- wonderful. The program's called Crossroads. It will air again and be archived on Vimeo. Have you ever talked with someone who's been to the Festival of Pacific Arts and Culture, FestPAC? People say it's like diving into the Pacific Ocean itself. Immersion in all the languages, the clothing, the costumes, the food. Senator Kalani English has spent over 30 years working with leaders in the Pacific region. He's chair of the FestPAC 2020 Commission. I think we can learn something from his perspective on this major gathering of tribes. It's coming to Honolulu. The homeland is coming to Hawaii. We have the entire Pacific uh, Islands coming here. You know, there are uh, 28 countries in the region, 28 entities in the region, and they're all sending delegates. So um, the smallest is Pitcairn with 57 um, citizens in their country. Um, I've talked to their mayor, and, uh, you know, the delegates can be up to 100. So we had a good joke. Uh, she said that, uh, you know, they'll send the whole country and they'll leave the British commissioner there to feed the animals. Uh, so, we'll, you know, we'll have uh, people from some of the most remote parts of the Pacific. Um, what will they do? It's to celebrate culture. It's to celebrate the fact that we're all one people in the, in the Pacific. But, you know, the underlying theme is we're talking about climate change and we're talking about the survival of our islands into the future. So, you know, yes, it sounds like a really fun and it is a very fun and festive event and the the discussions that will happen are substantive. We have to figure out how we're going to work together uh, to deal with these uh, immediate threats that are facing the very survival of the Pacific Islands, including Hawaii. You know, most people don't realize that Hawaii lost one island already. We used to have 133 Mm -hmm. islands. Now we have 132 islands. Way up north, one of our islands disappeared a few years ago, right, after a big storm. So it's hitting us uh, in ways that people don't realize, and it's, it's very, very quick. So it's not just art and craft practitioners coming? No. We have the Austronesian Language Conference, which is Taiwan bringing in all the top scholars from around the world on Austronesian language and history. We have the Pacific Philosophers Conference that's happening at the same time. We also have APIL, the Association of Pacific Island Legislatures, is having its um, General Assembly here as well. Are you finding that um, it's just so great that you've got these connections to all these different places? Are you finding that the climate, that it's sea level rise that is the primary problem? So sea level rise is happening throughout the entire Pacific. Think about um, countries like the Marshall Islands or uh, Tuvalu or Kiribati. They're atolls. Some of them, you know, I use imperial measurements, right? So some of them are... um, for six feet above sea level. If there's a king tide, the entire atoll goes underwater. So there, now, now, right now. So in Marjo, the capital of the Marshall Islands, a few months ago, it was inundated. It went through the capital. Um, Kiribati, you know, I I go there probably once every five or six years. There are places that I, when I first started going there, there was a village. The last time I was there, it's about a foot underwater. So and where are the people? The people have moved inland or moved, because it's very little land, moves laterally. A lot of them are migrating. The very first climate refugees are coming out of the Pacific. And a How lot of them... How many of them do you think they are? Well, there are thousands. You look at the Micronesian community here, the Marshallese community. People are here say, how can these people come from these beautiful islands, come to Hawaii and live in a park? But think about this. They used to have fresh water on their little island. The salt water came in. It inundated the fresh water. They no longer can raise food. So they had to leave. They had nowhere else to go. It's not their choice that they're homeless in a park, but they have something that they don't have at home, fresh water, 
dry land. So we are the recipients of some of the very first climate refugees in the world, even though we don't quite know it, right? Hmm. What's the budget for, for Festival of the Pacific for Hawaii? Well, so, um, you know, Hawaii, the, the legislature has put in about $2.4 million um, of what I would say is hard cash, real dollars. We have the Hawaii Convention Center that's uh, given us half a, half a million of cash, but also a lot of in-kind support. We have a lot of donations coming in. We have a fundraising effort ongoing right now that's asking our corporations and our Pacific uh, partners to consider joining us, and we have different levels of sponsorship. So really what one of the major outcomes that we're hoping for from this uh, Festival of Pacific Arts is that... Uh, Hawaii reintegrates into the Pacific, and the Pacific reintegrates into Hawaii. Um, it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to realign with the region and start working closely with our, our, our neighbors right next to us. Um, a lot of uh, business people come along because, think about it, 28 countries in one spot with your political, local, and local leadership all at one area. You know, what would take you two months of travel in the region, you can get done in one day uh, at the Festival of Pacific Arts because everybody's here. Are you expecting a visitor bump for Hawaii on this? Yes, we are. Um, there are Festival of Pacific Arts groupies around the world, you know, yeah. people that, that every four years will go wherever yeah. it is. A lot of people from the islands also come. We expect at the maximum 22,800 participants, that means delegates, you know, maybe ten to 20,000 people actually attending the events. The numbers out of Guam, you know, for their event was about 90,000 people participating in the festival. It's at the Honolulu Convention Center from June uh, 10th through the 21st, and, you know, we have rooms that can hold 25,000 people. So we're, we're, if we get that many people, we can accommodate them. So exciting. I mean... We will have canoes. The how and when of that is... Uh, still being uh, worked out. I see. So, but will home base be at the convention center? Yes. So the the entire uh, festival will be based at the convention center, and we'll have some satellite uh, events at like Bishop Museum, Royal Hawaiian Shopping Center. Hi Sam's real excited. Hi Sam. Yes. You know, and so I'm in my mind. I'm trying to think now. How do we get some of the festivals to the neighbor islands? Again, it's a cost item. If we had the money, we would certainly do it. Right. Uh, help me with that, though. Um, like for Guam, was this actually an expensive thing, uh, you know, thing yes. for them to do? Guam's, uh, I think their final numbers was $18 million. It cost them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and various forms. I mean, that's hard, what we call hard and soft cash, you know, real money as well as lots of in-kind. Oh, that includes in-kind. Yeah, it's all the in-kind. So, you know, I would say that we have enough to cover the expenses. Now we're raising monies to do the other things that we need, you know. So as host, Hawaii as host, um, we are responsible for food, housing, and transportation for the two weeks that everybody's here. And I'll put that in perspective. You know, we have been sending delegations out since 1976. Hawaii has gone to every Festival of Pacific Arts, and our people have been hosted each and every time. So this is our turn. Um, it is a costly endeavor, but it also is one that... Um, that gives us great pride and gives us great meaning uh, and helps us to revive cultures and revive our own culture and look inwards and look outwards uh, and create the connections that can build build cultural cultural value for all of us here in Hawaii. Pacific. Um, Pacific, why? Well, and the Pacific is huge. I mean, that's the thing that people don't really understand is that, you know, it's the largest largest region in the world and Hawaii is right in the middle of it right we're dead center in the middle of the Pacific so the the islanders uh, look to us for a lot of guidance you know they want to talk about climate change they want to talk about what we're doing how we're dealing with coral reefs uh, regrowth of coral reefs how we're dealing with sediment and runoff how we're dealing with waste management you know and so in talking with the city yesterday that's what I explained to a lot of the directors it's like you know they they're looking for some 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 partnerships like you know what are, what are you guys doing how do we how does Hawaii deal with this oh super super yeah. interesting yeah uh-huh how to go forward from there um, 
you know, of the Pai contract. Mm -hmm. uh, how much was that for? The uh, original contract was for $1.2 million. Uh -huh. Was it all used? Uh, no. About 800000 of that went towards the housing, food, and transportation. The, the contract was uh, terminated by, um, by Pai, um, and it was on a very amicable terms. You know, we're still working with them. They're still supporting us. We're still supporting them. We reached a point where we had to really get a lot done, and um, so the commission went from an oversight commission to a working commission. Each of the commissioners took a, a, a chunk of the work, and that's our, our role now, our kuleana. So it's about a month since we've done this. A lot has come together. We've secured the opening and closing sites. So the opening is going to be at Iolani Palace. Closing site will be at Kapiolani Park. We're working on participation in the Kamehameha Day Parade. For the delegates that want to participate, we've secured the sites for the Pacific Village, which will be in the promenade in front of the convention center. That's a city park, you know, that little promenade. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One last thing, coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So what do you think? Yeah, so we, we, we're more worried about measles. The coronavirus, according to the Centers for Disease Control, um, you know, will peak very soon. Um, they're saying by, you know, beginning of March uh, should be the peak and then it should start dropping. So we monitor this every day. But we're also watching others like measles. Um, you know, when we first started, we tried to recreate and, and recreate what the Pacific has had in the past. And as the commission evolved, we realized that we have to show a modern, vibrant city. We have to show Hawaii as a multi-ethnic, multicultural place in the middle of the Pacific. And so, you know, we went from trying to recreate what was there to say we're going to showcase Hawaii. That's why we did the convention center. That's why we're reaching out to a lot of uh, unlikely partners. The unions. We've reached out to the unions and said, you know, we need some manpower and some help to do this. We've reached out to Kamehameha schools to say the princess's vision of education is a major component in this. Political leaders are going to be here. Having them meet our political leaders. Along with that, it's all the business people that come. So it's almost uh, like we're, we're creating a think tank and a free thought zone for people in the Pacific to get to know each other in a cultural way, but also make the political and business connections that are needed as well. Mm, mahalo to Senator Kalani English for that update on the Festival of Pacific Arts and Crafts. FestPAC is set for June 10th to 21st at the Hawaii Convention Center. And while I'm updating you on festivals in Honolulu, you probably already know the Honolulu Biennial is now a triennial. That seems like a more Pacific pace. Melissa Chu, influential director of Washington, D.C.'s Hirshhorn Museum, is curatorial director for the Honolulu Triennial 2022. Also, the executive director, Catherine Tudor, has left, gone rather suddenly. Heather Shimizu from the Triennial Board is interim ED as an international search gets underway. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting For You Fabulous Fashionable Women, woodblock prints featuring women from the Edo period in Japan through March 22nd, honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Mary Mackey, author of The Jaguars That Prowl Our Dreams, New and Selected Poems. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the tropical jungle that exists both outside us and within. Sunday at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors The Rice Partnership and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Have you seen the action in Kaka'ako this week? After last year, there were more than 330 paintings in that one square mile area. And with 100 artists at work all week, the neighborhood's re-emerging with some eye-catching artwork. Now, this is the 10th annual Honolulu Powwow Street Art Festival. Believe it or not, this idea, hatched by local boy Jasper Wong, has happened now in 17 cities. 
Kobe, Japan, Venice, Italy, Austin. They were at South by Southwest, Washington, D.C. Nearly a thousand murals all together. At the opening party, Jasper was just amazed that it's kept going for so long. Us running the organization, you know, it's all about sort of giving back. We grew up out here and we wanted to try to find ways to give back to our community through art. Wait a minute, this is a living now though, right? No, Paula's definitely not a living. It's uh, it's definitely a passion project still. For you and Kamea? Yeah, for all of us, yeah. Oh, it's all volunteer-based, all the artists volunteer, because at, at the end of the day, you can't charge people money to go look at public art. You know, it's there for the community. And then all of our events are free. You know, it's us just trying to raise money throughout the year, um, all of the amazing sponsors that sort of support us. We're like family, all of us coming and just, you know, trying to support our communities through art and trying to like bring up Kakako and our city and our, you know. Hey, Kakako, what do you feel about Kakako nowadays? I mean, looking back 10 years ago, no one spent time in Kakako. You know, like there was no one there. Like you would maybe go there to go to Fisher's, right? Like you need to buy back to school supplies. It's like, okay, I gotta go to Kakako, I gotta go to Fisher's. Or maybe like back then it was like, well, like, like Compuse. You know, so. Or car repair. Yeah, or yeah, okay, your car repair. And now, like when you walk around there, it's a tourist district. There's tons of people walking around, all taking photos, all trying to find all the murals. And then because of all that foot traffic, they're also discovering, you know, local shops and restaurants, you know? Which are actually going there because they're Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. And then like, and, and, and now it's like, there's so many amazing shops that they're going there and also discovering art too. Because a lot of the businesses that are there are small businesses and they're local. We all work together, we all support each other and it's one big community. Jasper, is this happening in every town that yeah. you guys do power? Yeah, like absolutely. This? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Every city that we're doing the project in, it's it gives back to the communities. It helps to grow local industry. It helps to promote and give platforms to artists and it helps to connect people to other artists around the world. We like we were all artists and we felt that public art was the best way to get our art out there. You know, instead of like putting our art into different institutions or galleries, we're like, hey, you know what? If we can utilize outdoor spaces and turn them into like these big open air galleries and use that as a cultural storytelling tool too, maybe we can make some lasting change. And we've seen it make a huge difference. It took time, you know, it took time for all of us to work together. I hate to think about the logistics. There are artists and journalists flying in from all over Asia and Europe now. I mean, you, you know the paintings by powwow key player Kamea Hadar. They're the striking portraits you can see off the H1 in Makiki, also in Kaka'ako. I asked Kamea how the heck they juggle this. It's also accidental, and so, you know, you kind of just go with the flow. I mean, we just keep getting more and more support, you know. I mean, you know, it's still very hard. I, I wouldn't say that it's the easiest thing. It's still, there's still a lot of convincing and a lot of uh, very much um, a struggle to, to keep certain support. But definitely the public appreciates it, likes it, loves it. You know, it grew in such a rootsy way. That was just the only way we could do it. <laughs> if we could find some somebody to like come in from up top and just like, okay, here you go. But it, you know, it had to work that way just because we were just limited in, in the resources we had. And, well, what and did you have that allowed it to exponentially grow every year? I don't know, we just love it, you know? Cause I think if you don't love it, uh, you're not gonna put in this much time and effort into something that doesn't pay money money wise it doesn't pay anything so unless you really love doing it it's like you know it's like anything it's like uh, being a, a, a boxer or MMA fighter or being you know you, you have to love the training you have to love uh, the day-to-day -day struggle so if you if you're not into that day-to-day kind of long-term uh, grind then it's just you know not gonna work. And what about your own work, Kamea? You, you got a great new piece there by Ward, and I heard you were working on some murals up at Stan Sheriff's Center. Basketball athletes. <laughs> um, Super cool, yeah. Yeah, it's really fun, and uh, um, Heineken is, is gonna sponsor one of my next big murals, which is not necessarily a tribute or even uh, anything to do with Heineken. They're just paying for helping to cover the cost of me painting a big wall for this for the people of Hawaii. Where? I don't know. I haven't even figured out what I'm gonna paint or where I'm gonna paint. It's Are just, you kidding? it's just uh, they, they, they said that they would help fund it. So, are you open to suggestions for places? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, for for sure, suggestions for places. Um, you know, people have suggest a lot of suggestions, but uh, what would be even cooler would be an actual 
owner of a building. Yeah, like a, con a connection, <laughs> more than a suggestion, but a connection to the actual building. But I'm happy to do to find my own buildings just because I. I've done it for so long, and I've painted with Pow Wow for so long. Yep, that's how it's done, people. If you've got a wall you want to beautify, look around, find the artist you like, and give that person a call. I've covered Pow Wow since the first one, and I realized recently you might be interested in the nuts and bolts of how these huge murals get painted. During Pow Wow, you can just walk up to any painter and say hi, and just start talking about the work. So the other day, I happened to find a parking spot right off of South Street, and I wandered over. I saw a guy on a ladder painting the facade of the flats at Pu'unui Condo. I had no idea. It was Solomon Enos. Heidi, you my disguise. How are you, Noy? How are you doing? How are you oh, doing? Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. You know what? I realized, Solomon, mm. that um, I've never explained to people what is the process of how people get yeah. a painting on a wall. Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry to bother you while no, you're not there. at all. Can you just quickly just Absolutely. tell me what's the process? How do you get it on the wall? Yes. yes. Well, um, for the most part, what I'm doing is I am um, taking an idea and I'm just replicating it much larger. And I've just simply, I'm almost like I'm tricking myself into thinking that I'm working on a small piece. So I'm, I'm taking all the logic that I would use on a small canvas or on a piece of paper and just simply scaling it up. So, Okay, um, so what is the process? Then? Yeah, so my process is that I start with um, a silhouette. So, the ma so getting and establishing the master silhouette, basically all the positive space and all the negative space, figuring that all out first. And once that's done, it's almost like the building is finished and now I can start doing the plumbing and the, ele the electricity and all the in internal <laughs> details. And, and then actually, I'm actually working on one shade of gray at a time. So I'll use a dark gray and I'll cover the entire canvas with a single shade of dark gray. And then I'll use a black, you know, deep black. I'll come oh, back yeah, and, I, and, stuff I, out. and I'll actually do the entire canvas. I'll do the entire wall with one color. And then I'll go to a white. And then I'll, I'll go across the entire wall and I'll bring that white wherever it needs to. And I don't put that white down until everything that's needed it is done. And then I'll go back to another shade of gray. And I'll come back and I'll just process one thing at a time. And what that allows to happen is for the, for the painting to actually emerge as an entirety all at one time out of the wall itself. Right, I see. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting one layer and another layer and another layer and You're every layer. Like carving out and yes, then adding yes. on. Yep. And maybe almost, it's almost as, as if this were uh, a camera and I'm putting it further and further and further into focus. Right now it's blurry. And the more I can bring it, more resolution I can bring in, the more clarity we have. Eventually I'll get all of the details, like the lips and the fingers and everything, and I'll, I'll call them through. And like, once I'm at about 85%, I'll go from black and white to color. And then I'll just put all, basically I'll then tint all the color that I need. It'll be like the building is done and now I can paint it, you see. <laughs> uh, yeah. Solomon, I thought you were gonna tell me that you made a drawing. Yeah. And then you projected it on the wall. Oh, no, and no, then no, you no, drew no. the lines and uh, then you no, filled it in. No. Yeah, I, I never project because to me, like projecting is having somebody chew your food for you and then put it in your mouth. And that's okay sometimes, but, like, but personally, I, don't, I like to chew it myself. I like. I like the frustration. Yeah, I like to be frustrated. I like the challenge of starting it with these raw ideas and then having to make mistakes and having to make changes. So I, I definitely like the hike. People know? are not going to believe this image. The yeah, so it's a intergenerational responsibility. That's the theme I'm playing with here. And it's a flower made out of humans. Yeah. And they're blooming. And then there's another generation, there's children they're, they're and then there's another generation and another generation. And then getting ready to spread yeah, it. Spread out again. <laughs> and, and it's a real reminder that trees plan a thousand years ahead. Trees are a constant reminder. If we ever get lost and we need to reboot our humanness, go find a tree and, and study it for a little while. And that's why our trees are our kumu, right? <laughs> that's why they are the kumu and they are the best teachers. They help us to reset what reality is. You know, the more we can peel ourselves with, you know, our natural processes, I think the closer we'll be coming to solving our problem because uh, we as a species have to get out of our own way. <laughs> we're, sta we're standing in front of our own, you know, picture here. So I think that's, that's the part of it. Oh, could I take a picture of you here? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I will. I will. I'll circle back later on I in the week. About Friday, Saturday, I'll be putting some color on it. Wow. <laughs> Goodbye. so lucky. Take care, Noah. That was artist Solomon Enos. He's painting at the flats at Pu'unui. 
must have been some unseen threads that <laughs> guided me there because we've been in touch with Solomon and he designed HPR's new membership t-shirt. You're gonna love it. Looking good, Honolulu. Here, have some hip hop with your graffiti. <laughs> Hawaii's super groupers say, learn to fly. Hey, yo, it's SG, let them know. MCs, check the flow. Coming at your live and direct via stereo. Ready, set, sail. Breathe in and exhale. While our lines going over your head like chemtrails. We plant seeds, some are burning the crops. And our spirits might be free, but our service is not. I might not be old school, but I'm an old soul. Holo, holo with us on the Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programs. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and Impact Hub Honolulu Co-working. I'm Ira Flato. On the next Science Friday, we wrap up our month-long dive into the health and future of the Great Lakes, can these important ecosystems survive? Can these vital ecosystems recover? Or will new invasive species erase decades of careful restoration? It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Starting this afternoon at 1. You're listening to the Aloha Friday Conversation. That's art, culture, and ideas in Hawaii here at Hawaii Public Radio. Noe Tanigawa here, and I've been wanting to check in with one of Hawaii's most simply thrilling artists, Keith Tallett. Born and raised Hilo, he lives in Pa'oilo now, a little town between Laupahoehoe and Honoka'a on Hawaii Island. I think you'll like him. Tell me, what are mornings like there in Pa'oilo? Mornings in Pa'oilo, well, um, I get up at about 520 in the morning, mm-hmm. because my daughter goes to uh, Kamehameha in Hilo. Oh, yeah. Oh, you got to Kia'i. Yeah, my daughter Kia'i goes. Mm-hmm. So I basically, I get up, wake her up, and we get ready, our day going. I drink mm-hmm. some coffee. And then after we take her to the bus, I feed my animals. I have a pig, some chickens, mm-hmm. and I go water my plants. What do you got going I got, um, I have some native trees growing because where we live is on five acres, so we have like some native trees growing. I got some taro growing, so I got to keep them hydrated. So I do that, and then and then maybe do one or two things in the studio after that. Then I head to work. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> okay, <laughs> then you head to work. What are you talking about there? I work at uh, a public school in Honoka'a, oh. Honoka'a High School. You do. Yeah, I do. Cool. Okay, what do you do? I work with um, kids with autism. Really? Yeah. What's that like? It's. I think it's pretty, pretty hard. But then it's for me, um, it's really rewarding because I feel like kids. Some of the kids I work with with um, autism are very nonlinear, like artists. So I feel like I'm working with other people who, you know, who do things that are not very linear, you know? What are you calling on to relate with them? Well, some of them we do, um, like, gardening, and some of them we do art. Some of the kids, we, you don't really see them in public, so just actually doing, like, utilitarian things, like getting ready for the day, mm-hmm. getting themselves taken care of, and... Even just hanging out with them, you know, social skills is, like, pretty interesting. What do you think you're learning from them? How long have you been doing this, Keith? Um, I've been doing this for, like, five, I think five years now. People tell me, like, man, it must be a hard job. You just must go home and just sleep or, or curl up in a ball. And, like, it actually makes me, I feel like I become, like, more creative because you kind of, like, see how their lives are. It's hard for them. So it kind of makes you appreciate what you have, which is kind of like an interesting way to look at it. And I feel like I'm helping people, so it's another, like, to me it doesn't really drain <laughs> drain me a lot. That's the way to make it work, you know. Um, Keith, I, I can't f- ever forget the first show of yours that I saw, that malicious show at SPF Projects. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like back 2013, and the curator there, um, Drew Broderick, brought you yeah. from Big Island. I was like, wow, that flying Hawaiian series with like the vinyl tire tread patterns that looked like ohe kapala or even kapa prints, and they were, or even tattoos, and they they were done in enamel and resin, so they had this surfboard kind of presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome stuff coming out of Pa'awilo. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, okay, so that was 2013. You've done so much since. I mean, I loved your work that was in the Honolulu Biennial since. And, yeah. I mean, what kind of art seems meaningful to make to you now and there? Um, well, I think for me, like, right now, I'm, I think my work is, like, really influenced by the sculptural. Still kind of, like, working with the themes uh, around us on Hawaii Island. So I'm working on actually a recycled foam, doing these uh, three-dimensional plus 2D work with uh, recycled foam. Oh my gosh. And like you said, the really good thing about being a Pauwilo is that you're out there and you're doing your stuff and you can kind of like focus on it, but you're kind of isolated. So you kind of have like that push and pull of like, you're doing it, but you know, you can't really gauge it sometimes (laughs) or which is all right, but, you know. Well, we can't wait to see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give my regards to Sally Lundberg, your, your wife. She's another yeah. great artist, and I'm going to talk to her next time, too. Yeah, that would be, and that's the other part of my whole uh, existence is that she supports me and I support her. So that's always, like, another part, you know, living in a rural area is, like, when you have support from your family, which is awesome. Keith, thank you so much. <laughs> so good talking with you. Oh, man, thanks for calling me. <laughs> hey, love to all. Yeah, you okay, too. Okay, staying in touch. I will. Okay, thanks, Keith. All right, thank you, Noe. Oh, I hate to leave Pa'oilo. That was artist Keith Tallett. Check his Flying Hawaiian series online. It's wild. Now here's some live music from this week in Honolulu for you. Duke Ellington's Prelude to a Kiss. Rich Crandall Piano. Bruce Hamada bass, Stacy Tangan on drums at the Musicians Union Studio 909. <laughs> I guess in 1938 things went kind of easy, a little less grinder, this prelude to a kiss. And that's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming next week, we'll have a President's Day special for you. All week long, the program's produced by Lillian Song, Harrison Patino, Jason Ubai, and Paige Okamura. Hope you've enjoyed this Friday together. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Catherine Cruz will be back on Monday with the conversation. Let's take care of each other. Till then, happy Aloha Friday.